and there was, you know, of course I love Danny, Danny Glover. Anytime he shows up in a movie, it took me a long time to do so after playing Mr. In Color Purple. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we're oh, back uh, to driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> Wasn't it no driving Miss Daisy? Oh, I haven't seen driving Miss Daisy. I haven't seen that movie. Who's in that movie? <laughs> <laughs> That's Morgan Freeman. Okay. <laughs> Hilarious. That'll be cut uh, out. I, I'm allowed to talk. Oh, hell no. You better, that you better keep that in there. <laughs> Welcome back to Black and White Movies. This is the podcast where we take a look at two movies that have a few things in common and maybe some crucial differences. I'm Jared, and I'm joined here today by with Danielle. Welcome, Danielle. How you been living in COVID-19 world? Hey, everybody's on this. Maybe we'll work from home forever. Okay, great. Maybe have to pay my half my rent. We'll be good. And, uh, you know, let's get that going. I'm kind of thriving in this world. I don't mind it at all. I have, I have AC and good Wi-Fi. I'm totally on. fine with conference calls. We don't have to be, I don't have to see you, right? Yeah. Today we are talking 2001's The Others, a film directed by Alejandro, I'm going to say his name wrong, Alejandro Amanabar, starring Nicole Kidman, of course. And then the other movie we are talking about is The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is more recent, 2019. Um, Danielle, do you want to tell us a brief summary of what Last Black Man in San Francisco is about? It's about a young man who is in love with his home, but his his home doesn't love him back. And yeah, The Others is about uh, Nicole Kidman, who likes to carry a shotgun around a lot. And there may or may not be ghosts. It's spooky, creepy. Uh, it takes uh, place in Jersey around uh, wartime, World War One, World War Two, one of those two wars. I should check that. Doesn't matter. <laughs> ah, yeah. So yeah, she t- it takes place around World War Two time. But as you said, it doesn't really matter, especially when you're in Jersey, which is like a place I had never heard. I had to Google. I'm like... Are they talking New Jersey? No, it's Old Jersey. Oh, is it English? No, it's like in France or something, but it's kind of like England. I'm like, I still don't know what Jersey is. No, maybe it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't really matter. The setting, it was just like a, there, it was the only location. It was like a block. Yeah, and it was like, <laughs> that's it. Rich somehow lady and her kids many years ago. Uh, we have to delineate, you know, I have my favorite white movies. And I have my favorite movies. <laughs> so this is definitely on the top of my favorites list. I, I really thought Nicole Kidman did a, she scared me, not not the movie itself, but she was like completely freaked out the entire movie, which helped actually build the suspense. So I don't think that somebody else doing that um, would have probably been as convincing. It probably would have just been another movie. But she really sold it. Yeah, and she's walking a tightrope of, are these ghosts real? And Or she's being overly cautious, not believing her kids. Or are they not real? Is she losing her mind? She had a, a tough job to pull off, especially when you're playing a character who may or may not have a, a mental illness. You know, it really kind of laid out the suspense in the beginning. Uh, you don't know. You're kind of plopped into this world and you don't know what the big deal is. And it just kind of like really, you know, guides you step by step. And it kind of distracts you for a little while from the premise. I thought it was really brilliant in the beginning how it brought in 
her religious and biblical, you know, teachings on the kids because you have no idea that there's like a ghost a ghost story coming out of this at all. So it was kind of like a little Jedi mind trick that they played on you. Why pick the others in uh, connection with the last black man in San Francisco? Do you know why I suggested this one? I was questioning at first. This is in a way it's a, a, a ghost uh, gentrification story where, you know, the ghosts don't want don't want to leave and then just hold on to this this house when other people are trying to move in. So I guess the horror of gentrification, the way white people relate to it is you make them think about ghosts trying to scare you out of your house. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, so we, you know, the whole point of doing this podcast is the fact that um, there aren't movies that line up, right? So uh, you don't necessarily have white people being put out of their homes and and um, priced out of their homes. That's just kind of like, in what world would that happen? That just, it literally doesn't take place. I'm talking about a systemic mm. uh conspiracy, I guess, if you want to call it that, for lack of a better word. The last Black man in San Francisco. I'm just going to tell you that very rarely am I latched in, latched on from from the first scene. I think that this probably was the best opening that I had seen in a film in years, in many years. I was completely hooked from frame one it took me literally the first 10 minutes of the film, I was dialed in. Visually stunning, the, the performances were very simplistic, but they were uh, compelling. So to watch it opening uh, the scene, it captured me and I was willing to go along with whatever story they were gonna tell me. And it's cinematically poetic, those first 10 minutes. You have the preacher, uh, the street preacher, having with this flowery poetic language and then you're seeing uh from our main character uh jimmy his point of view a house and how the 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 ornaments and the little bits of the house connect to his own body and his own person and the city itself and i'd agree with you if moving from hunter's point to the fillmore district to the tenderloin it not it showed everything it showed you the character um what he wanted but then also just San Francisco as a character itself, which I thought was beautiful. You know, with a very limited budget, they did a they did a tremendous job in showing kind of like just getting to the point. There was some very strange, um, I guess it was a bromance. I can't tell what the nature of the relationship of the two main characters are, but um, it, they wanted it to appear innocent, so it did. <clears throat> but at the same time, it was you know, a little problematic, just just in so many other different complex ways. But um, I think it was the intent was to focus you on the subject matter, right? So we don't want to buddy this with a love story or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever the case may be. It just wanted to tell the story about this young man and his hope and dreams, I guess, you know, Jimmy's connection to his family and his lineage, wherever he could grasp, you know, he couldn't grasp it from his parents and he couldn't grasp it from anywhere. He was out in the world and he was kicked out. Right. Yeah. And so he didn't have anything to call his own. And it was just this one thing that he can continue to look at. It was a, a physical structure that he can actually say that that's me. You know, it was the one thing left. 
Yeah, that house that he claims his grandfather built when he came to San Francisco. His anchor in the world and his friend Mont is there with him, helping him pursue that dream of kind of reclaiming and retaking that home. And, you know, that could be seen as the fight against the trend of gentrification. And they made a point to talk about how this was where the the Fillmore neighborhood where the Japanese people lived, but then the internment camps happened. So then black people moved in and became a vibrant black community. Then those people were pushed out. So we see a, a history of gentrification. And, you know, Jimmy, we... A suspect is the the titular um, last man in San Fr- black man in San Francisco. He wants to keep that San Francisco identity and then keep his family lineage and save that home essentially. Yeah, and I think that um, one of the things it didn't allude to, which was which was that black people couldn't live in San Francisco prior to probably what they established was his grandfather living there. So there was a a shift. Um, it wasn't just San Francisco. It was uh, Oregon. It was, you know, parts of Washington state. There were, you know, when the railroads and everything came in, you know, there was a, a, a migration during this time where a lot, a large swath of the black community came from the South, you know, so the great migration, right? Mm-hmm. I think the most important thing to me was that it's kind of a a microcosm for a bigger conversation about how black people belong in America mm-hmm. or how they feel uh, unwelcomed in their own home. Yeah. So not being particularly African, not being particularly American, um, having, you know, to have to name an entire continent where African-Americans, where there's 54 countries, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, what is that? Um, it is a very complex uh, relationship that that we end up having with with our own native land. Been here over four hundred years and still are fighting for those same you know rights to belong. And so it's kind of like it's you know it's this movie is set in San Francisco, but it ends up being a bigger conversation it's about everywhere too. So let's hop back a minute. I want to return to that opening sequence of Last Black Man in San Francisco with the men in the hazmat suits. That is a very alarming visual. You see a little girl and then there's just these men in hazmat suits. The average viewer or many viewers aren't familiar with San Francisco. They might not know what that's all about. But to me, it speaks a lot about um, where uh, lower income people have to live, uh, black people, uh, other other marginalized communities it is definitely a trend all over this country whether it's uh freeways being routed through black communities whether it is the power plant whether it is the you name it all the massive dumping all of the methane if that's what you want to call it um is is landed right in in black and poor communities where jimmy and mont live is a neighborhood called hunter's point which they show in the movie it's kind of over the hill so it's geographically divided from um the san francisco tourists would visit and and the reason people are in the the hazmat suits is there's actually um, a large-scale cleanup nuclear disaster basically that's been going on there for decades the U.S. Navy had a base there where they attested, did atomic weaponry tests. So in in Hunter's Point area, you have all these 
areas where pe- there's babies born with der- birth defects, uh, cancer. So what was visually stunning to me is how they opened the movie. I, when they opened the movie that way, I knew exactly where they were and the setting. And that's, you have the, the neighborhoods where they have uh, expected the uh, predominantly black community to live are areas where there's literal atomic waste and it's been going on for decades. Rather than just telling the viewer that, they kind of showed it. I love that. That was that was that was a brilliant move because you don't have to know the history of San Francisco to know what's going on when you see a little girl living her life skipping along, um, but then there's people in hazmat suits in Geiger counters and that sort of thing. Yeah, the, it, it kind of reminded me of the famous Norman Rockwell painting, right, where uh, Ruby Bridges is walking to school or a little girl is being walked to school by the National Guard and. You see this sign of, you know, racism right there on the wall. It is, um, you know, it was a very clear picture. You don't have to know everything. You know that this ain't right, right? Yeah. You can screenshot it and know that it's not right. I think the the four young men or the men that were hanging outside of Mont's house uh, alluded to this, where they built the nuclear, you know, weapon. Yeah. Now that you said that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that brings that back to me, um, and you know. Your mom uh, catches the fish with two with the extra eyes and everything. Yes, yes, interesting. And you know, um, not for nothing. I'm, I'm sure I can get in a whole lot of trouble, but I don't really care. Um, <laughs> I grew up right next to JPL. Yeah, Northwest Pasadena um, was, you know, the thriving black community. It's not a mistake that that was the black community literally right next to NASA. Mm-hmm. Isn't it now NASA, but it was JPL at the time. And um, literally every single old person on my street that I grew up on, which is beautiful and picturesque, died of cancer. <laughs> they just thought that my grandmother had cancer. All of the, her neighbors ended up dying of cancer. Um, eventually, it, it's, it is a thing. Uh, we've been talking tone a lot and cinematic language for Last Black Man in San Francisco. The others, to me, was very much, it's one of its strengths was the tone and the atmosphere. It felt like storybooky. I'm not familiar with this land of Jersey and um, this kind of living in this wealthy manner. And Nicole Kidman, her character, she keeps the whole house closed up. She locks her house up like a ship when she's introducing these three visitors that come to work for her after her prior help has fled. You, you figure this all out and it's, there's something mysterious about her, about the house, about her kids, but so much is left in the tone and the, the creepiness of it before you even start talking about ghosts. What'd you think about that? Let's, let's also give a shout out to the little girl. She mm-hmm. was, she was so talented. Um, and I don't know that she's gone on to do a whole lot of other things. Um, her, her character's name was Anna and she was, um, very, very convincing in delivering the most important pivotal messages within the, within the film about her mother, um, about the fact that someone right with her, she was very convincing with telling her mom and pushing back against her mom to say, Hey, something's not right. Something, there's something you're not telling me. She remembers everything, but the mom at every step, you know, uh, Nicole Kidman, her name is Grace in the film. She continues to cut everybody off 
right before they're going to, you know, reveal mm-hmm. that, you know, what really did happen. She's in denial this whole time. Yeah. So I thought it was very brilliant. And whether you believe in spirits, you know, hauntings and things about uh, about that, there are definitely things in, in households that you can't deny, right? Yeah. The mysterious things that happen, um, especially a house of that age, you know, you it gave you, I like the, how they wove in the fact that this house has been around since prior to the 1800s and, and going back with, with the little books. So again, it showed you kind of how last black man in San Francisco did. It showed you rather than told you about the deaths that had occurred over the centuries um, within this household. And um, so to look at and see visually, you know, what these people have been through but nobody wants to let it go, which is why I kind of suggested in terms of mashing these mm-hmm. two um, topics up was, you know, um, even in death, <laughs> people don't want to let go to their let go of their homes and whether there are servants there. Right. Which kind of you can parallel that with the last black man in San Francisco. It's not even your house. Right. Um, but she, she, he even asked his friend Mont. He was like, do you think they'll let me stay there as like a, a caretaker of the property? Mm-hmm. Like that's how, you know, and that's why I was like, when I started thinking about the concepts within there, I was like, these two kind of mash up kind of perfectly. Yeah. To me, a house that size would be that a nightmare because like you said, if, unless you have servants, you can't upkeep a house like that. And how is, even if her husband was there, how are the four of you going to use up all that space? So off the bat, like if it wasn't for the the charm that Nicole Kidman had, I would hate that character and hate that whole priv- privileged ass family. Cause you, what are you even doing living in a house that big? It's so big. They didn't even realize they had a graveyard with the names of, of your own live in servants on it. So it's like, if, if your house is so big, you don't know there's a graveyard on the property, then okay. uh, get on, um, you know, Zella. What's, what's the website for finding apartments? Get on. Zillow. <laughs> yeah. Zillow. Get on Zillow. Zillow. Or era, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, no, uh, it was totally Downton Abbey um, with four people, right? And were you, did you find yourself questioning the kids' disease? Is that a real disease? I, I guess I could ask Google, but it immediately made me question the character's mental state herself. Immediately, it made me when I first saw it. Now I can remember I watched this at the movies, and the first thing I thought of was she was crazy. I didn't think that it, there was anything wrong with the kids. I didn't know if we were getting set up for a vampire movie because the kids were super pale. So <laughs> you know what I mean? They looked a little bit more uh, vampire-y, but lack of sun. And so I was like, okay, so what's going to happen with these kids? But I thought that she had the problem and that she was paranoid and clearly, you know, deranged. Yeah. So no, I didn't think of, I didn't think of, I didn't really consider whether it was a real disease or not. I mostly thought like, is she uh, slip the, let the cheese go on ahead and slip off that cracker. And I still don't really know, even given the twist ending, which maybe we'll spoil in a second, even given all that, like, I still don't know if before, the incident uh, that made them how they are if the, her kids were indeed um, had that issue. But um, she does mention that when she her husband briefly returns and they have a fight, she accuses him of going off to war to get away from them. So it's clear they did have some family tension 
and some problems before that she left. So I think she might have had like a Munchausen kind of thing where she forced her kids into darkness when it w- wasn't really necessary. Now, I, I think I, I, I do think they were probably sick, sickly, but I don't know what I did uh, find interesting was when the husband comes back, which you can't tell whether or not he's wandering out there in the wilderness. And this is it. That was the only thing that was kind of off for me. I was just kind of like, so is he in this purgatory? Cause they were talking about purgatory since they're all in this purgatory. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm like, so you could just randomly meet people in purgatory, like, hey, you know, like, come on, come hang out over here. We're all together in this uh, weirdo place. That was one thing that was strange. And then I never did, this is the second time I've seen it, and I've never understood the locking of the doors. Like, they they really latched on to this lock every door, and they abandoned it almost immediately. Um, when there's an emergency in the, yeah. in the in another room, yeah. so it was just kind of like a, it was a distraction that they didn't hold to. Yeah. So that was that was probably a problematic for me. So can can we spoil it now? Could we just spoil this dang movie? Yeah, let's spoil it. It's twenty years later. <laughs> let's spoil the hell out of it. <laughs> and to me, I I would say I saw the twist coming, but I saw the the potential for this twist and i told myself no they're not doing this twist because every movie that came five years after the sixth sense had this twist so i'm like they're not going to have this twist but it they did do the twist and they gave us a double twist where first you learn the uh, three servants what are their names uh mr tuttle and we'll just say the the three others the other people that came the, the, the first twist is that we find that the uh three new servants are ghosts themselves and they had died of tuberculosis earlier but then we get the double twist when we learn who victor and the other people are who we initially thought were the ghosts they are actually having a um spiritual uh medium uh o- o- awaken the ghosts and uh, they're having a seance right so they are actually the humans in the present what is the present of the movie and every every other character we've met is the ghost. So I thought even though the twist um, had been done a lot in this era of, of well, let's say, horror mo- thriller movies, they, this was original enough that I enjoyed the twist. Yeah. And you know what? This was a very complicated, like, as a director, this would have been a very complicated movie to film. One location to keep your attention, number one, to film in almost the same setting, every single scene in this house in the dark and to hold your attention. I This is a scheduling nightmare. <laughs> you know, if we want to get down into the weeds of what it would take to make this work, it, it, it was actually a feat. It is so much easier to like blow shit up and you know, have lots of set pieces and everything like that. This really depended on the performance. It depended on, you know, you buying into, like you said, uh, the twists and and being led, you know what I mean? Uh, willingly, because you, you have to willingly go into this. Otherwise, you're not going to believe any of it. Yeah. Um, and so it took risks. And I don't think you would have got this with an American director. He is a, a, a fairly good, I've seen some of his 
foreign films and uh i guess he's most known for vanilla sky mm-hmm. which was a kind of a strange one but still interesting as far as the storytelling mechanism that he uses so i the way he approached the filming of this was was very foreign to american storytelling it was a spanish director right yes Alejandro Amadeir. Hey, you said his name right. I said it completely wrong. <laughs> well, I thought it was more fun to listen to you struggle. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Let's uh, get back, hop back to Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, you mentioned earlier the relationship between Jimmy and Mont, because that's one of the things that I really enjoyed in this movie, because it's a movie about where does this man belong in a world where it maybe doesn't want him anymore, but then also like, what is it to be a black man in the world? And I really liked the relationship between Jimmy and Mont because so much of what transpires interpersonally has to do with m- male ego and masculinity in this movie. And Jimmy's kind of in both worlds. He was raised in foster care. So he had uh, previously known uh, Kofi. And I think I'm saying his name right. But Kofi was running with the 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 kids who would hang out on the street and they would argue about you know if someone was if someone's masculinity dropped they would talk shit on it on him and jimmy is kind of in that state where just by hanging out with mont he's kind of suspect because mont is like the weird kid so unapologetically so too right yeah he does he knows who he is and he and he doesn't care Whereas Jimmy kind of wants to still have that flash and feel like he has some street credibility when he walks by the guys on the street. So you're constantly getting kind of hints of this male machismo um, and just how uh, a black man living in uh, Hunter's Point is supposed to conduct themselves. And then that all comes to a head when... Uh, Mont invites Kofi to come stay at the house and he stays at a house and at first everyone's on guard but they end up doing sauna and just connecting and it's and it's all really good until it's not and it masculinity comes back into it and Jimmy is challenged I I, I agree with everything you just said but I of course I'm coming from a different perspective right one of the things that is disturbing to me Number one is we have to we have to for the sake of our broad understanding is identify when things go a little bit left. So this is a story written and story by um, a black man and a white man collaboration. A, a lot of things did not ring true or were overly stated, um, and so I was aware the entire time that what I was watching visually was an interpretation. And it was okay because it still made sense and it was still very thoughtful, but um, I still believe just coming from the perspective of Joe Talbot is a person who directed this. He um, conceived of it with uh, Jimmy Fails. They, they they brought this together and brought it to screen. Jimmy Fails starred in it, um, and Joe directed it. But at the same time, it was clearly, in my opinion, is Joe's vision mm. um, and Joe's interpretation of what it looks like to him. 
Okay. Yeah, it was almost it's semi autobiographical of Jimmy's life, but what you're saying is it's almost kind of filtered. Joe heard his Jimmy's life and kind of filtered it through. It's through his lens. Through, yeah. Because it while well, and that's why when I say when I look at it from scene one and I see visually that is somebody who can see the beauty right in a culture that maybe we can't see in ourselves. But at the same time, then it it also flips when it comes to. I thought those four male characters standing outside the house were very telling. Mm. And, you know, whether or not I believe that 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 injection of those characters comes from Jimmy, but the way they were portrayed and the way they don't have any kind of background or any kind of uh, grounding in terms of who they are and what they are. And you're supposed to kind of interpret who they are. No one ever asks what are they doing there? Yeah. <laughs> are they making money? Are they hustling? Are they, you know, do they not have jobs? You can, you can guess you're left. The audience is left to guess. Right. Mm. But they are there to serve as what you said. They are there to serve as almost like the, the symbol of masculinity and uh, ask the question whether or not this is correct or not without any kind of background whatsoever so I, I found it to be i won't say it was troublesome but it was complex so for him for kofi to go into the house you know it's kind of like almost bringing you know it's, it's like are you trying to shed that uh masculinity yeah. or are you willing to it, it's a very interesting way that they tried to weave a story in there that group of characters they weren't fully fleshed out full characters and we were they relied on a few kind of stereotypical characterizations to kind of tell the audience who they were and it's a very white idea of what a a, a young black man is i think they were intentionally caricatured right i think they were intentionally but we see kind of um at the climax of that relationship you know, the payoff is really good that they are thoughtful. Um, they're humans. Uh, when, you know, spoiler alert, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we lose one of the main characters there and, you know, there's hurt there. That is uh, a very, that was actually a very good twist to that, to show that those type of relationships um, or those type of people, you know, those people. Yeah are not exactly what you think every single time, right? They're humans too. Because Kofi dies and it's Mont who writes the play about him. And Mont all along, uh, Mont brought Jimmy into his house. They became friends. And um, in many ways, when Kofi and his friends were talking shit about Jimmy and Mont, Mont was illustrating them in his book and Jimmy questions him like, why... Why do you care about that guy? He was just talking shit. But Mont always saw the humanity in not only Kofi and everyone else, but also Jimmy himself. And when he, um, to go back to the poeticism in this movie, the the play he put, puts on towards the end of this movie is all about Kofi and how he fit in with the whole larger community. So I asked myself several times watching this, who is the last black man in San Francisco? Is it Jimmy? Is it Kofi? Is it Mont? And uh, it doesn't really matter who exactly it is because in a way it's, it's all of, all of those people. Right. And there was, you know, of course I love Danny, Danny Glover. Anytime he shows up in a movie he plays uh, Mont's grandfather and they made such a, 
Oh, it was so cool. And that's just me not having enough English words. A very interesting parallel between the blind leading the blind. And I felt like the entire time with Mont and Jimmy, it was the blind leading the blind. Uh, even the grandfather leading, you know, his his father and the dynamics of that relationship. It was just kind of like no direction. And this is what happens in families and the disenfranchisement of, of Black people in our society where you can't even earn enough to keep your families together, mm. right? And people, either you're strong and you do everything you can to scrap and hold on to what you can, or, and you, and you, and you may thrive, right? But the, the pinnacle ends up being, how can I get that house away from this community, right? And so they leave. And so it ends up being a drain of, of talent within a, a community. So it was very interesting to see the the blind leading the blind, and they did it physically with the with the with the grandfather. But it was a metaphor that kind of was a continuing uh, theme throughout. Absolutely, um, absolutely, and like here, Jimmy is obsessing over his grandfather's home and what it means to him. Meanwhile, he's living inside of his surrogate grandfather's home, and like how you're talking about these multi generational families where a physical address is such an anchor to a family and can affect generations. We see just how affected Jimmy is by the loss in his family of his grandfather's house and that how that affected his relationships with his father, with his um, aunt. So it's it just says a lot about what real estate means, not just to families, but black families in particular. Well, you know, not for nothing, the only kind of wealth that Black people were able to obtain in this country. Uh, and I want everybody to know just just for sake of understanding that I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about a, a, an identity, a group of people. You know, unfortunately, with statistics, we have to delineate Black, white, and other. It's a dumb, it's, it's an idiotic classification but the way capitalism is set up there has to be people on the top and there has to be people on the bottom and from the beginning um we have been decided that people who are brown are at the bottom the end no i didn't make this up okay and so when i say black people i'm just talking about a community and um, I'm not talking about you or your, you know, of course, everybody has anecdotal uh, evidence of, of the opposite. So let's <laughs> let's just go ahead and, and squash that now. But what, I, what I'm pointing to is the fact that they give a little bit of context in here and they talk about the banks, right? With the, when he goes and he's like, you know what? The house is empty. I'm gonna go ahead and try and get my house back. You know, he's like, I got a job. I, I don't make, you know, clearly mm -hmm. he doesn't make a lot of money. He's living on the floor of his best friend's house. Um, and so he tries and he's like, yeah, it's like $4 million. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it shows you kind of like the immense inequality and unfairness in the system where even a house that is uh, your family property, and this is where families you know, obtain their wealth and build their, their biggest safety, right. you know, for 
future, you can't even participate. You can't even partake in that type of um, security. It's not for you. Yeah. And I liked that realist, just as an aside, I liked that real estate character because he was slimy in a very particular way where he wanted to get down and be cool with the guys, but then he also fucked them over in the end and gave him kind of this false lead of, oh, that house won't sell. But then lo and behold, he's the one putting it out on the market. Right. And and it was fascinating, too. I love that the cops were never called, that the, the couple who lived there, you know, they were kind of like um, they understood what they were doing to a community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they felt guilty enough to not call the cops every time he showed up painting the house or, yeah. you know, doing his, um, they knew he came in the house when they weren't there. They knew all this stuff. Right. Yeah. And it was very fascinating. And, and I love that that element of law enforcement and, you know, cause that just takes the story completely off the rails, mm-hmm. but it was a very interesting point of view. Yeah, you don't have to have bad intentions and be a mustache twirling victim to still play your role in these institutions and organization of our society. Like like you mentioned, that white couple, they kind of knew, hey, we're on the winning side of gentrification and white privilege. We we feel bad about it enough to let, let you paint our house and break in every once in a while. Right. It, you know, it's a... Um... It, it, it's com- almost like a commentary about uh, how, you know, sad it is that black people can't express their disappointment with America, right? They, when when the real estate agent does come in and take over, he kicks all their furniture out, right? But they still have to be measured in their response. It, it's, it's such a huge, it's such a bigger metaphor in terms yeah. of, you know, how you kind of have to, just suck it up and deal with everything but you know I, I i wasn't planning on missing the movie but i missed it when it was in the festivals i missed it when it was in the theater so i'm really glad i got a chance to see it yeah this was a, a, a movie i didn't see until we were going to do this but i it was on my list of movies i wanted to see that came out in 2019 and it made it's one of my favorite movies of last year quite i saw your whack ass list my whack ass list huh <laughs> <laughs> Which, what what whack ass list are you referring to? The one you said your favorite movies of 2019. I didn't like any movies of 2019. I I can barely remember. I think I like. I don't. I, See, don't I would call know. it a banner year with there was so really? many there were so many hard hitters. What exactly? What movie? Without diving into my list, what movie did you have the most contention with? I don't remember Damn. the list. I just remember like nope, 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 nope. Uh, well, <laughs> that's all i remember i don't remember your list it was uh, crazy well maybe some of my those excellent films will make it to one of our discussions here um, maybe. i well i wanted to say something specifically as um from the filmmaker side of things the shout out to the bay area for you know bringing in such nuance and, and different conversations about um, film. I think it's one of the most vibrant areas, Boots Riley and his contributions, Ryan Coogler um, and his contributions. I even like Joe Talbert. I, I like his storytelling style. So, you know, I think that there's a, a real voice that is different. You know, we, we got the Southern California film experience with John Singleton, RIP, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the Hughes brothers back in the day of Gary Gray. We, it was very L.A. centric. 
And so it's very, yeah. it's very cool to see a different perspective. And they, there's a, you know, people are like, it's the same state. You may as well cut it right in half. It's <laughs> a different world, yeah. It's a totally different world, the Bay to the LA. And I'll echo that because this movie, when I saw it, I said, this is San Francisco. A lot of movies are set in San Francisco, but it doesn't feel like San Francisco. And I grew up in the Bay Area. And this movie is what San Francisco felt like. It felt like San Francisco more than, say, Star Trek Four does. <laughs> I, it's funny you say that because even though, of course, I'm from California, I've only visited the Bay, uh, San Francisco, Oakland area, you know, several times. And it felt very authentic. It felt like I was looking at something that was an interpretation. It was something that people who lived there and loved it there. Um, and I like I like that. That was one of the specific things I wanted to say when uh, Jimmy confronts the girls on the bus. Mm. And uh, they were talking shit about San Francisco and he confronts them like, you know, are you from here? And, you know, do you love it here or do you like it here? And they're like, you know, it's all right. And he, they, he was basically like, you can't you can't hate it unless you love it. Exactly, <laughs> or, yeah. you know what I mean? And it, I understood that sentiment. Yeah, understood. Even, even that was a cool note, because I can having lived in the Bay Area, I can think of at least two distinct waves of San Fran- of gentrification and ch- huge disruption that occurred in San Francisco. And um, so, yeah, they were almost like a second, a, the first generation of gentrifiers getting upset at the latest wave of gentrifiers, which is something you definitely see in San Francisco and other cities. Yeah. So that that was interesting. To overall for the for the movie, I thought it was it, it had a very um, interesting point on resilience, which I think again is metaphorical for 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 the black experience. Yeah, uh, very resilient people, and he was very resilient. It was a you know a little bit of a sad ending. I don't know if that was an homage to you know the Asian culture, which they didn't tap upon in. Um, in San Francisco, but there's a large Chinese American uh, community in the Bay um, and in San Francisco in particular, but they, he just goes and drifts out to sea. Uh, That is a Mm -hmm. uh, kind of what, you know, Chinese culture does with their elders uh, from, for many of century. I thought that was like Vikings. I think it's Japanese. Don't okay. give a little- that makes sense because they're on they're an, they're on the island, right? A, it's a big island. In yeah. Japan, when your when your parent or grandparent gets older, you sit them on a on a a dewey and you push them out into the ocean. That's r- hella wrong. That's worse Don't than ask putting. Me. That's worse I than putting them in like the villages in Florida. I didn't make this up. All right, well. I can't make this stuff up. So the uh, but I liked what you said about resilience. Because Jimmy knew all along that his grandfather didn't build that house with his own bare hands. But he was content lying to himself and holding that in until he was confronted with other people telling him they knew that it was true that his grandfather didn't hold on to it. So maybe part of resilience is a willful ignorance or a unjustified optimism that's kind of a... A craziness in itself, but it gives you that power not just to hold on, but to have attainable goals that you can work towards. I really think it was a 
a note on letting go. Right. So I don't know that resilience means that you hold on, which, you know, which you're cold, you know, from my cold, dead hands. I don't I don't think that that is being resilient, um, but I could be wrong. I'm, I've been wrong before. Um, I think that means that you do end up making the best of really messed up situations at times. So my was his thing was like, you're not this house. You're not this house. Right. Isn't that mm-hmm. what the the tenets of the play were about was that you can be much more than this. You just have to see it. You have to be willing to let that go. And you're more than that. I thought he was such a, um, he was such a, a deep character. He didn't say a lot, but when he did spoke, it was very profound when he's sitting there and he's drawing the picture of the corner boys. Right. And he's like, you know, they're always getting down on you. They're messing with you. I think you mentioned this a little while ago. They're always tearing you a new asshole, basically. And uh, he's like, so I can't appreciate them still. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is where, as a people, as people and humans, um, that we forget those little nuances that everybody is not all one thing. I loved seeing the Segway tour. Especially that it was uh, the leader of the kind of Segway neighborhood tour was none other than Jello Biafra. I thought that was a really cool cameo. I wouldn't know who that is. He was the singer of the Dead Kennedys. And I heard his voice and I'm like, you couldn't tell from the helmet, but I had to IMDb it. And sure enough, that was uh, Jello Biafra playing the cornball leading the Segway tour. So I really, one person I would never expect to see on a Segway is Jello Biafra. So seeing him on a Segway was pretty cool. Hilarious. Yeah, no, I would have never he he would have been he was so random, but <laughs> if you want if you want uh, if you want an auditory trip through the Bay Area, go back and listen to some Dead Kennedys because they had some really good songs. Interesting. I'll have to do that one day. Mm-hmm. Back to the others. I know we're almost wrapping it up here. <laughs> I think that the 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 takeaway from that is about the afterlife. And where we see things happening, do we live in parallel universes? Are we experiencing life simultaneously as other lives are continuing to go on around this? And I think that more commonly, you know, not to drag coronavirus back into it, right? But it forces us to face, we see numbers on the screen, right? We see the the number the death toll ticking up constantly and it's hard to really kind of just grasp those the weight of that number and how lives that were once here are removed and and it, we find ourselves kind of having to check out i think that's what's happening as people go back into the world right mm-hmm. but when you're looking at a film like the others and it's talking about and it's having this commentary about holding on and um, embracing your state in, in your where you are at the moment. I think that that was the part that we don't know what, what, what that's going to be like, but we need to figure out right now and say, hey, we're in this moment right now. I walked into the Target and it was a whole new world, right? There's a line, you're six feet apart, it's wrapping around, everybody's in masks. It's not strange anymore. This is what it is. And so it's just kind of like, with that movie, 
and, and with all movies, with a lot of movies, we sit here and we have to choose what we're going to allow to um, guide us through um, through our lives. Mm. So accept that you're a specter at, at this specific location at this specific time. That's right. Yeah. And be and, and also be in tuned. Yeah. Right. Be attuned to other things, to the spirit world. Would, would you say at the end of the movie, Nicole Kidman and her kids are more at peace knowing that they're ghosts haunting this house? Yes. I think I've, I don't uh, think so. Maybe you don't. Well, so you don't think that that's 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 actually was the point of the movie. I, I think, thought that was. The point. I think for the I think for the two minutes we saw them living like that, sure. But a year, two, three years from now, I think that that's a pretty dim, grim view of the fabric of reality. That here you have this family where the mom literally killed the two kids. Those kids should be on an escalator to heaven real quick. But now they have to keep living in this house that with their mother who murdered them brutally. It's kind of it's kind of messed it up. Like it is. And it, I agree with you there because I think that's where the movie messed up. Right. But in my opinion, once they find out that the mother killed the kids, the kids should no longer have to be in this world. Oh, You're yeah. no longer. They're no longer trapped. Now, she's trapped. That's on her. Yeah, she's, she, she did the killing, right? Yeah. Why do they have to be stuck in this? That's not the baby's fault. Poor kid. <laughs> but, but you're absolutely right to to, t- to gleam the message away, to, to peel that layer off the onion, that, yes, we should be mindful of the reality of this moment because, like the others, we are all trapped in our gloomy houses with the windows closed. But... Um, it's up to us if we decide to let the light in and what kind of light that is, uh, what, what the world's going to look like a year, two years from now. Yeah. I mean, just save your money, um, and, uh, get your booby traps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, there's so much, um, uncertainty out there. You know, the, the nature of work is going to change. It, it's been, you know, uh, changing for years mm-hmm. and now it's going to like in a matter of it's kind of like a, a switch got you know hit right mm-hmm. so um the switch has already been hit you can't unhit the switch now yeah. so the last point i'd like to bring up i think is at, very apt to this moment too is mike epps character uh, in last black man in san francisco he looks at a burning house that's burning down and he says you can never really own shit so don't obsess about the the possessions the house the clout um just be mindful of yourself and your body and how you treat people around you and those interpersonal relationships i felt like that was the takeaway from the entire movie i think that was the premise of mont's play right Mm -hmm. and uh you know at some point you just have to let it go oh that was that was the uh one thing I wanted to say, the fact that there were just no women in this movie, aside from Tashina Arnold, is really strange to me. Yeah, there's no women in The Last Black Man in San Francisco. No female. Well, there's definitely no female romantic character, but not too yeah. many female characters. Which is very strange to me. It feels strange um, now that you mention it, but... 
I didn't feel any sort of thought like that watching it because it seemed so much to me at least masculinity was central thematically within the story I think um yes so yeah right but being that black women are very um pivotal in the in the black community they pretty much hold up <laughs> the entire things not will not not because we want to um but because it's kind of been a, a a thing and it, it is a very interesting dynamic he runs into his mom on the bus like oh hey like you know you're what you're meeting a friend from high school or something so it was a very it is different it is definitely a different take and i like that you know women are not always the good guys you know what i mean right. and and that was a that was a very different take which you don't see you only see this kind of like reverence towards um black women and their contributions and it was just kind of like no we're, we're paying attention to this right now um and then that was okay it was just it was just remarkably not there you know what i mean like you yeah. can tell it was omitted intentionally there was a uh, weave in the street that the character kicks does that count as a character no no a female weave in the middle of the street so are we looking at woke movies or whack movies between the others well, and the last black man in San Francisco. Of course, if I have to choose, I'm going to say, you know, last black man in San Francisco is super woke. I'm, I, I'm not okay with calling the others whack since it is one of my favorites, but because, the, okay, real quick. Now that you've seen the last black man in San Francisco and the others, what other movies would you pair up and mash up with the last black man in San Francisco other than the others? Cause I couldn't think of nothing. I would have to think about that, but I think I'm trying to remember. There's a movie, a, a, a mo any movie about like an old white man losing his house. I would say there was one where the guy lived near an airport, and they were trying to take the movie away from him, take the house away from him. Yeah. <laughs> there, there. It's definitely a trope of like. The person who's the last holdout in this house and they want to put in a freeway so they want them to move oh so like batteries not included yes <laughs> you remember that yeah <laughs> i'd pair this with batteries not included interesting huh? okay yeah well um and so we're gonna have to qualify what's what's a black movie so is it because uh jimmy was in it and it was black guys in it but there was white people making it does that well, is that a black movie? That, like, what is the criteria? That is an that is another layer that's pretty interesting. It's like I think it's be, it has a lot to, because blacks in the title, so they're priming you to know that this is speaking to about a black person. Blacks in the title of the BT channel too, but mm. by a composite. So, what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Look at Jared's like a, where. Stop record. <laughs> it's, a, it's a black person that owns BET, right? I can't possibly fathom. Yeah, about 30 years ago, mm. Bob Johnson. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> That's what you call a uh, black targeted, mm. <laughs> not black anywhere. Well, I'm not okay with that. Okay. That's why I yeah. only watch the Oprah television network. She doesn't own that either, so sorry. Oh. Darn it. 
they took discovery took their part back yeah yeah there's um black owned stations you you would have to look to byron allen i think he's the only one wholly owned uh black owned uh media conglomerate that's it that's the only thing left yeah so that's depressing to end on a note right um that's a happy note yeah I thought both the movies, I thought Last Black Man in San Francisco was the wokest, made my top 10, but the others is a perfectly fine, enjoyable movie. It's great if you want to scratch the horror itch, but not the gory horror itch, and just want to see an atmospheric, tonally spooky kind of movie. Heck yeah. I will recommend the others any day. It's even for those uh, people who don't like horror movies. Um, they could still enjoy it. Kind of like A Quiet Place. Yeah. <laughs> on our on our Facebook page, shout out to our Facebook um, yes. group. We are so excited that you guys are out here talking um, about films with us. We love the engagement. Don't you like that, Jared? Aren't you having fun on there? I love it. I want, and I want, not enough people are yelling at me personally. I want to be the punching bag, the whipping boy for white cinema. You know, talk shit with us about movies. Join the group, Black and White uh, Movies Podcast. No, it's just Black and White Movies at, oh, at Facebook, on Facebook, the group. Okay, cool. Yeah, so thanks for that. And uh, we are looking for suggestions, so let us know. I have a suggestion right now, but we need to find out um, what can we pair with this. So I put up a question and I asked specifically for top five gangster movies. Mm. And I got all gangster movies, no hood films. So there's a distinction between gangster and hood films so i would love to do a mashup between gangster and hood films and i would love the hood film to be colors have you ever seen colors no good so yeah so okay cool so so you pick the gangster movie will mash up with colors so we'll have the facebook group pick the gangster movie for us yeah and you're thinking like italian kind of gangsters or british kind of gangsters something like that yeah right on all right. So, yeah. So thanks for watching this installment of Black and White Movies. And, of course, like we mentioned, join us on Facebook in the Facebook group, Black and White Movies. And you can always uh, find us on Twitter, Instagram, and all that other stuff as well. And, of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast ap- application of choice. Danielle, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's fun as always. Stay safe out there in the coronavirus world. You too. Stay safe behind your computer. Uh, of course, I'm I'm going to be um, locking the windows and working by candlelight here. Great. Toodaloo. Bye-bye.